0: All right. Book of Romans. Book of Romans. Book of Romans. All right. Book of Romans. Now, sometimes I make a good decision. Sometimes I make a bad decision in how to approach a chapter or a book. I, I, there's a part of me that think, I'm thinking I'm making the wrong decision, but there's another part of me that says the reason I have to take this approach is because no one else takes this approach. So we always, we typically approach every chapter differently than everyone else, correct? Now, that's kind of what I do, right? I listen and go, okay, Here's a, I've listened to a hundred sermons. They all ignore this. Right? And typically what they ignore, in my estimation, should be the very thing everyone is asking. Right? That should be the question everyone has. And it's like it's just weird. Like it'll be like, here's the question, and and I'll listen to a sermon like they didn't even address the controversy. Not only what's worse is when you go spend twenty dollars on a commentary, and they don't even bother to address the controversy. That's crazy because we have to address the controversy. So we're in Romans chapter 9. We, how did we introduce Romans 9, 10 and 11? What was the emphasis in our introduction? What was the emphasis in our introduction to Romans 9,10 and 11? What did I? There was one word, only one word I wanted you to rem- remember about Romans 9,10 and 11. Okay. No, that's not more, that's more than one word, OK. Israel, there we go. Israel, all right. That's the one word, okay. And why did I want you to notice the word Israel in Romans nine, ten, and eleven? Because it's mentioned multiple times. Did we count twelve? What was your? Had everyone count? <laughs> 14, okay, so who knows, <laughs> someone, has no- someone has it in their notes, it's multiple times, okay, I don't, I, I, it's multiple times, Romans 9, 10, and 11, now what is, what is the most difficult thing about Romans 9, 10, and 11, what's the most difficult thing about Romans 9, 10, 11? It's, it's, what in the world is this doing here, right, because if you go to the end of Romans 8, how does Romans 8 end, Yeah, the last couple of verses? Yeah. They and all these are more We're more than conquerors. Because... Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Right? It's a positive, positive, positive thing. Demonstrating what concept? God's mercy and love that nothing can separate us and that in Him I'm more than a conqueror. That sounds like great news, right? His mercy and love. Now go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, someone's quoting it. Romans 12, well it's open book. You don't have to guess. Romans 12:1. Yeah, 12:1. Now I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. How did Romans 8 end? Showing God's mercy that we're more than a conqueror and that nothing can separate us from his love. Then in chapter So it makes perfect sense, right? What in the world is nineteen and 11 is doing? It seems out of place because 1911 is almost like Paul's like time out everyone time out time out time out time out time out. For the next 16 years, if you're preaching, right? For the next 16 years, we're going to forget everything that we've been talking about and we're going to spend 16 years talking about Israel and you have to go, "Why is he doing that?" Some people think it's like it's out of place. I'm trying to argue that it's in place. It just seems out of place, but it's actually in place. Because I think it's going to demonstrate, are you ready for this? God's mercy, God's grace, and election, which was a major emphasis in chapter 8. I think it fits, but it all deals with Israel. Now, okay, I've it out there, 12 times Israel, one time so 14. 14 total. 14 total. There you go. So, 14 times total in those three chapters if you need to write that down. Now, so we could just start moving through the, the chapter relatively quick, right? I could give you an outline, but this is what we started last week. Everybody remember, here we go. Everybody ready? We're not going to make it very far. I mean, I, right now, if you... if you, we, we, if you I'm trying to get, gather all of the sermons on Romans and put them in one series so they're easy to find online. And right now... Um, try, we're uh, trying to just get them all together we're at 90, 90 sermons as of right now and that we haven't even included all the ones that have already been preached we're probably well over 100 before we even get to chapter 9 so by the time we're done with that by the time we're done with chapter 9 I think we're going to get 100 sermons in 9 10 and 11 and I'm not that's not joking we may get 100 sermons in chapter 9 before we even get past verse 3 all right, And I know that sounds crazy, but we have to deal with some, some issues. So here's the issue. Everybody ready? Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now that's pretty simple and straightforward, right? Paul has a great burden and he is broken hearted for whom? For Israel and which Israel obviously is it referencing? That's obviously referencing national Israel. His kinsmen according to the flesh, right? He wants to see them saved. in fact, how much does he want to see them saved? If it was possible, he'd be like, I will go to hell so that they can be saved. It's not possible. But if it was, that's pretty that's a that's a deep commitment. Right? That's a deep commitment. Now, so if we stop right there, we could preach that. And what how would we preach it? How would we preach that? What would be the typical sermon on those three sermons or on those three verses? Come on, what would be the typical sermon? What do you have the same kind of burden for the lost? That's how it would be preached. Right? And that's a good sermon. That's a very good sermon, and it's something we should ask ourselves, right? And at some point, we may come back to that. That's, that's a worthy sermon to preach. I'm not, by no means am I negating it or, or looking down upon it. I'm just saying that's what you expect to get when you, like, like, if you listen to sermons all the time, and sometimes you're sitting in a church, and someone says, turn to Romans 9, 1 through 3, you kind of know the sermon you're going to get. The more sermons you listen to, the more you know the typical way of approaching a passage. Well, then we come to verse 4. And then everything goes. Because what happens in verse four? Here we go. Let me read it. Who are Israel or Israelites, I should say, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and of the promise. So he's doing something to identify who he's referring to. He's referring to Israel. And Israel, there's a lot of things that they have, right? What are a lot of the things they have? I, gave, I told you to write them all down last week. Adoption. Adoption glory. Covenants. Given of the law. Service of God. Promises. Okay, and Christ came from Israel. All of that, listen, all of that, we know which Israel is referring to, right? The nation of Israel. So we're like, okay, this is good. All right, that's awesome. There's a lot of promises for Israel. Next verse. And then this is where everything goes crazy. Right? So I I guess technically verse 6 is where everything goes crazy. But but you could start, you could really get into verse 4 and 6. But okay. So verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now as soon as we get there, Problems begin. And so we have to take a different approach. This raises the question, okay, which Israel do we understand? Who is Israel? Who's the real Israel? Will the real Israel please stand up? All right? That's kind of where this goes. Will the real Israel please stand up? And what do a lot of people do with this verse? What are some different ways to approach? Who is the real Israel? I gave you some, some different approaches that are taken. Okay, what's the first approach? Okay, that, that, okay. not all people who are Israel, Israel. So the, the true Israel are those who are Jews, but those who are believers. Alright, what would be another uh, approach? Anyone who believes, that's true Israel. True Israel is anyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, that's Israel. Alright? What would be another word for that? Some may refer to a spiritual Israel or the church. Now you see where this becomes problematic, right? And some people make an argument that this is the, the indication that what happened? That God replaced Israel with the church. God is done with Israel. So, we could sit there and just simply try to address this. So what was my approach? What was my approach? Do what? Before we come to any conclusion, let's wait till we get to the end of chapter 11. And then I said, there's something we need to do. What do we need to do? We started working on it last week. We got to look at every promise given to Israel and figure out what we do with them. Now, I know you're like, but we're in Romans 9, why we do? No, because we, we've got to identify, is God done, did God replace Israel? In other words, we have, look, if we, it's easy to say it theoretically, right? Yep, God's done with Israel, we're Israel, everybody good to go? Everybody says, amen. But if there's all these promises, we got to figure out what to do with them. So, where did we start last week? What was the first promise we looked at? Okay, well, we, we said this just so that we remember numerous Old Testament predictions which treat which treat of a, or speak of a repentance and restoration of Israel, and eschatological terms which is distinct and separate from that which followed the Babylonian captivity. In other words, we could say this: the Old Testament promises of a repentance and restoration of Israel that seems to be distinct. From that which related to coming back from Babylonian captivity. Now, why is that important? If there's a repentance and a restoration that is distinct from the Babylonian captivity, what can everyone in this room say right now, dogmatically, absolutely factual, nobody can argue against it? It never happened. If 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 a restoration and a repentance of national Israel is spoken of distinct from Babylonian captivity, it never occurred. Right? We know they come back from Babylonian captivity, but that's only Judah, right? That's not the North. And then, even though they come back from Babylonian captivity, where do they find themselves soon a- later or soon after? We're back under Roman control. And then, what happens after Roman control? Wiped well, off the face of the earth. And then finally they become a nation in 1948. Have they repented and completely restored? Do they have the land? No. Have they repented? No. So then where's the repentance and restoration? Now, the minute I say where's the repentance and restoration, what are the possible answers? Where's the repentance and restoration? What's the possible answers? Either future, God was wrong, it's in the church. There you go. There's your options. So let's go. We, we looked at these scriptures. What was the first one we looked at? Hosea. All right, everybody go to Hosea really quick. I know we're taking a lot of time to review here, but that's okay. I got to get everyone on the same page or we cannot move on with this, all right? Hosea 3. All right. Everybody there? Hosea chapter 3, what verses did we look at? 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without uh, the teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, what's the obvious question that you would have here? Is that a reference to Babylonian coming back from Babylonian captivity? Or does it fit? Right? Does that make sense? Okay. A lot of questions we could, we could ask there. All right. Okay I won' I won't go into it, just show you that the promise is there. Now go to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. All right? There's a lot of a lot of scriptures here, but that's okay. Ezekiel 37, all right? Uh, let's see, well, well, there's a lot we could go, there's so much we can, we'll just start in verse 11, we're just going to read all of this, all right, here we go, because chapter 37 is such an important chapter, all right, Ezekiel chapter 37, all right, in fact, you know what, I, let's just do this, because we just got to get the whole chapter out of the way, all right, we, we just have to get the whole chapter out of the way, because this is such a key chapter in discussing this subject, right, so let's just start with the very beginning, all right, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. Now let's stop right here. Let's be honest. I did this as, an, as a young preacher because this is the way I was taught. Immediately when you come to Ezekiel 37, what do a lot of preachers do? Okay. Okay. Israel gets kicked out. Boom, gone. Okay, this is not about Israel. Okay? This becomes about whom? Dead sinners who receive the word of God is preached and God brings them to life. It shows the deadness of man and the power of God's word to regenerate and bring to life, and it is used as a picture of what? Salvation. It preaches good, right? I was taught that a bazillion times. I've heard a bazillion sermons on that. Okay, But the only problem is, this is found where? In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, it probably has something to do with whom? There's a pretty good chance, right? There's a pretty good chance. So let's see what happens. So so he's brought into a midst of the valley of which was full of dry bones, or, or full of bones. It doesn't say dry bones there, but full of bones. Okay, Everybody got that? Right. Now, what happens, verse 2? And he caught and caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. So there's where we get the idea, they're dry bones. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. That's always a good thing to ask when, when asked a question by God, you know. I don't know anything. Alright? It's always the right thing. And in fact, if y'all were smart, whenever I ask you a question, you could just say You know, we don't. But I'm never going to let you get away with that. Okay, Never going to let you get away with that. All right, verse 4. Again, he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a shaking and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. All right. This is a... This is a bringing together these dry bones and bringing them what? Back to life. Then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded and the breath came unto them and they lived and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And it makes me very angry at myself. It makes me very mad at the way in many cases I was taught. Because in most cases that just gets overlooked. Because I've got to preach a sermon. Again, I've said it so many times. What are what are more, sometimes, and, and I wanted you to write down as a practical lesson, in many cases, what preachers are more interested in is a sermon than the text. Sadly, what most people want is a sermon, not an understanding of the text. Does everybody know the difference between that? What's the difference between a sermon and actually concerned with the text. What is the, we're going to just go practical here. What is the difference? Sermon is, is put together in a nice nice way, which usually follows the basic rules of speech. So what do you need to do? What are some of the good things you have to do in a sermon for it to be good? Good eye contact. Got to make eye contact with everybody, right? I'm horrible at that, right? I just ignore certain people and just kind of just look one direction. I'm horrible with eye contact, right? Okay, okay, because I'm not so worried about. Okay, I gotta, gotta make sure I'm doing this. Okay, all right? Okay, I know you're supposed to do that, but I, I'm, I'm bad at it. Okay, all right. What else do people want in their sermons? Gotta have eye contact. Gotta have a good. Uh, you gotta break the ice at the beginning. A good opening illustration, either to grab your attention and pull you in, right? Or something funny to kind of break the ice and get everybody, (laughs) ha, 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 right? Okay, so you got to have a good opening introduction and you got to have your body nice and put together. How many points typically? Got to have three points, man. Three clear points. Okay, Okay. start with the same letter is always a good thing to do. And they've got to be practical. Got to keep it practical, baby. Got to keep it practical, right? And then you got to come in with that powerful conclusion, right? Boom! A really sad story to get someone to cry talking about a dead puppy or something. Boom! You gotta come in, you gotta do good, right? Okay, and you gotta be done in about 30 to 35 minutes. Right? You gotta get everybody to the golden corral before the Methodists get there, right? You gotta you gotta you gotta do that, okay? Okay? and then when it's all said and done and, and then what you hope for is everybody walks away and say good sermon pastor now they're not going to remember what you said by Sunday night okay I mean, you guys don't remember what I say by Sunday night but, but you try to do that and then everyone, play, everyone pretends like we had a good sermon it was great and everyone, everyone thinks that they, oh, that everything was wonderful really it means absolutely nothing and it's vanity of vanity of vanities okay that's how most sermons are stru- I mean you can hear the structure just listen to, ser- I mean, if you I, know you, I know it's a crazy idea, but listen to sermons, okay? I know it's crazy. What? You want me to do what on a Monday? Okay, listen to sermons, and, and after a while, you, you'll start picking up the template. There's a little joke, there's a, you just start figuring, you can figure it out. You know what's coming. What's the difference between dealing with the actual text? What's the difference First of all, may not be applicable to you. So no, application is the last thing you're concerned with. Not the first thing. Okay. What's another thing? If you're dealing with the text, what are you concerned with? You're dealing with the, the problems in the text. You're dealing with what's there, right? You're not worried about, does it fit together? Is it nice and neat? Does it have three points? You know, you're, you're just digging in. You're asking questions. And again, what should be the goal is, is to get you... In the text. Some people just like, okay. No, you need to figure it out. Right? So it's a whole different approach. That's why when some people walk in here, they're like, what is this? Right? And And even sometimes, I bet some of you, I wish I could just get a sermon. I wish you, well, there's about a bazillion of them online. You know? If you want a nice little sermon... Because people don't want to deal with... So, like in a nice little sermon, would we be taking the time in Romans 9 to go all the way to Ezekiel and now read from 30... No, we wouldn't probably spend the time... A pastor may make a reference to it, but he's not going to spend all of the time doing that because he's got to keep the sermon. Everything Everything is sacrificed for the sermon. And I'm just... I'm tired of that whole structure. It needs to be burned to the ground. We've had a million sermons... And Christians are more biblically illiterate than they've ever been. The sermons aren't fixing biblical illiteracy. So that means the sermons are useless. And then what we say when we talk about, look at the public schools. Kids graduate and they don't know this and this. They don't know what they're doing. We condemn the public school to the 18th level of hell because they don't know what they're doing. But no, Christians don't want to criticize the church for clearly not knowing what they're doing because we've got Christians graduating who can't read. Isn't that what we always say about the public school? Well, they 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 graduate and they don't even know history. Oh, let's talk about Christians and church history. Come on now, let's let's have let's have a come to Jesus meeting here. Okay, come on, Christians don't know anything about church history. Well, whose fault? Well, first the individual. Just same thing, even if you go to a bad public school, that kid's still responsible because there's probably a library and they can get books and they can read and learn. Right? So the kid can make all the excuses in the world, but at some point he's got to take responsibility. Christians can make all the excuses in the world. Give me a break. All right. All you need is a device, a Bible, a notebook, and you can get a seminary education pretty much every 24 hours. Now, if it's an Android, it doesn't... Okay, you're, you're just done. You're doomed. Okay. okay, but it's all on here, right? Yeah, I just... You picked up an Android, so I had to say something negative. Okay, all right. But, but to get it... I mean, in other words, so it's on you, but the church... You should be able to go to a church that will help you Right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, Ezekiel 37. Now, why why I stopped and went on that little bit of a rant, you may say it's not connected. It's connected because what bothers me is right there in Ezekiel 37, it gives you the interpretation. And I'm like, how did I not see this? Because I was always taught to preach it as salvation, 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 salvation. This is soteriological telling us that I preach it, that you're the dead sinner. I preach the word of God with the spirit of God and he brings the dead sinner to life. This is a picture of total depravity. This is a picture of election. This is a picture of regeneration. It preaches good and I've preached it that way. Dumb. Dumb. Sometimes you can't listen to what people teach you about the Bible. You've got to go read it for yourself. What's the passage about? The whole house. So read, read that verse again. What's the verse? What's the key verse? Verse 11. These bones are the whole house of Israel. These bones are the whole house of Israel. These bones, are, it doesn't matter what any preacher says, doesn't matter what some seminary says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now what's significance about the phrase whole house? I think any reasonable person would say that means the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Hmm, that would, that, why is that Interesting. After the Babylonian captivity, they're still split. Not only are they still split, the north doesn't come back from Assyria. Right? So, this is the whole house of Israel. The whole house of Israel's is dry bones, and they're going to be, boom, brought to life. Brought to life in what way? Physical life? Or spiritual life? If it's spiritual life, then this speaks of a future what? And what else? I think someone's saying Salvation. That's going to be important by the time we get to Romans 11. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. And restoration. Oh, yeah, oh, well, yeah, we're getting ready to get there. Okay. So what verse did we just stop at? 11. Let's read it again. Then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people. What people? Israel. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the... Oh, so not only do we have a restoration and possibly salvation of Israel, what else do we have? We have land, once again, being mentioned. How many times is land promises mentioned in the Old Testament? It would be insane. If you ever want to just spend your weekend, just start in Genesis and write down every time Israel's promised land from Genesis to Malachi. Every single time. And then ask yourself, did it ever happen? Keep going? Okay. If it did happen, it wasn't long. Okay. Verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And I shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Is there land again? Please note, I'm going to put my spirit in you. This is not just land. That's salvation. That is salvation. That is salvation. Right, Uh, then shall you know that I, the Lord God, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, "Moreover, thou son. Now, so in other words, that's he's giving him a prophecy, right? Now, in a sense, he's getting ready to do something separate. Yes, there's almost a a separation here if we're doing a natural outline, right? Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah." And for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak uh, unto thee, saying, Will thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks whereon thou ridest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. What's a simple way to explain that? Reunification of Israel. So we have restoration... Revival, Land, and Reunification. Would everyone agree that all of those are promised in what we've just read? Let's go through them again. What are they? Restoration, Revival, Land, Reunification. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now here's what drives me crazy. Here's what will drive me crazy. We'll get into Romans, and I'll mention something in Romans, and if someone's going to come walking up to the pulpit going, nope, that's spiritual Israel. That's not real Israel. That's spiritual Israel. And they'll be like, well, okay, okay, we'll, we'll slow down. I don't know. Have you ever read Ezekiel 37? Can we just ignore Ezekiel 37? Uh, Twyla, while you're back there, if you, if you can find it, should be able to find it online rel- relatively easy. Find Matthew Henry's commentary on Ezekiel 37. should be able to find it relatively quick. Uh, there, you're going to find the, like, the shortened version and then the whole version. If you can find the whole thing, just skim it and let me know what he says in regards to Ezekiel 37. Or just find like one sentence or paragraph that really summarizes his view. Okay. Oh, well, I know we've done it before, but well, I'm going to see if we can find it because I didn't think about doing this. Right? Because I've got an article here that gives us how we're supposed to interpret Ezekiel 37. It's, it's going to be fun. All right, But let's continue. All right? So they put them all together. Right? Now what happens in verse 21? And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and they will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. What do we have again? Land again, land again, land again, land again. And I will make them... Wait, I'm going to make them one nation. What does that signify? Reunification. Reunification. All right. Um, and in the land upon the Mount of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. When did they ever come out of captivity, being one nation with one king. And if you even try to find a historical solution, it becomes really iffy, 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 right? Because we know even, because you've got a very short period of time, right? Babylonian captivity, they come out, boom. And then the next thing you know, it's not going to be long. Rome. They're under the boot of Rome. And how long do they stay in the boot of Rome? I don't know until they're completely wiped off the face of the earth. Yes? Everybody got that? All right, now let's continue. What verse was that? Verse 23. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols. They're not going to have any more idolatry. What else are they going to do? Nor with their detestable things, nor with their uh, with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. That's complete cleansing them from all of their sin. Anybody been to Israel? Is it all all their sin gone? We're in 2022. Still hasn't happened. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Whoa, well, wait, what, what, what just happened? David is going to be king over them? That can't be David, the David, because the David is dead, by the way, before you get to Ezekiel, right? What David could that be referencing? The son of David, the, the, the one, the one, in a sense, the one who's going to come from the line of David? Right? But David's going to be what? King over them, and they shall, and they all shall have how many shepherds? One. One shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them, and they shall dwell in the land. Please note, what are we back to? Land. I have given unto Jacob my servant wherein your fathers have dwelt and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Now remember, forever doesn't mean forever, right? Because we already talked about it. Forever really doesn't mean forever. It just means Jesus. I don't even know what, I don't want to go through that whole thing again. Verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them for evermore my tabernacle shall also be with them yea I will be their God they shall be my people and the heathen shall know that I the Lord do sanctify Israel whom my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. please note who's going to know what's happening the heathen Is, is, is that a pretty, is, is that is that chapter seem complicated? What do you think? Does it seem pretty straightforward? Yeah, is pretty straightforward. It, it's straightforward. There's for oh, there's wild things in Ezekiel. I'm not seeing the book. I'm saying this chapter. Yeah. Chapter straightforward, right? Hey, here's this, I, I'm going to give you a living parable, Valley of Dry Bones, and we figure out, and he tells us who the dry bones are. Who is it? It's Israel, and he's going to do what? Bring them together. He's got two sticks showing the two sides. He's going to bring it together. There's the unification. Then he speaks of the revival. I'm going to put my spirit in them, purge all of their sins. And then he speaks of of ruling over them, and he's going to be in the midst of them. Everybody see all of that? Now, I'll just give you an example, though. That seems clear. That seems clear, right? Oh, no, it's not clear. It's not clear. All right. Are you ready for this? All right. Listen carefully. See if you catch it. right. See if you catch it. Here's a commentary. Ezekiel 37 is divided into two prophecies. Would everybody agree with that? The first prophecy deals with the vision of the dry bones, verses 1 through 14. And the second prophecy deals with one kingdom, which is a symbolic act forecasting the future union of Israel and Judah. The two prophecies are closely related. The first prophecy, uh, the vision of dry bones, was designed to illustrate that although Israel was scattered and seemingly hopeless, it would be revived and restored to its national life, and that God has a plan for revival of a Jewish state. But does this prophecy have a future fulfillment? Some believe that the prophet Ezekiel didn't write of an end time fulfillment, but the truth that prophesied, but the truth is that prophecies have dual application, and in this case, the prophecy's first application would ultimately be followed by a second literal resurrection. That is, when all the saints would be raised to live in God's new kingdom. So, you see what they just did? All the saints. Well, how did we get to all the saints here? That is when all the saints would be uh, raised to live in God's new kingdom. Had the Jews been faithful, had the Jews been faithful to God and lived by his principles, they would have inherited his promises, but unbelief and disobedience prevented God's plan from being fulfilled. Now, I just want you to think about There you go. Israel's sin stops God's promises. Our sins don't. Now, I want you to see that is the most frightening thing I've ever read in a commentary. Their sins stopped God. Hey, I want to give you land. I want to... I'm sorry, man. You guys messed up one too many... One too many times you messed up. Now, how in the... Why? Now, just think about it. Why would then... Why, If that's the case, why would Paul even mention Israel, especially following a chapter about the doctrine of election? That means your sin cancels out God's election. Your sin cancels out God's promises. So this is how we should read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him and is faithful will have everlasting life. And if you don't believe me, look what God did to Israel. He kicked them to the curb. Well, I mean, if he kicked Israel to the curb, you're all sitting on the curb. All of you, including me. In fact, we probably don't even get a curb. Right? We, we, I don't even know where we end up. But wait, let's, let's continue to see what he, they go on to say. I want you to hear that again. Had the Jews been faithful and lived by his principles, they would have inherited his promises, but unbelief and disobedience prevented God's plan from being fulfilled. God's plan was prevented by man's sin. I'm sorry, that's the most, that's, that's to me just completely blasphemous. That reduces God. First of all, are you saying God didn't know about their sin before he created man? So now you've destroyed his foreknowledge. You've destroyed his omnipotence. I mean, basically, this God is pathetically weak. I mean, this... this, Yeah, I get frustrated reading these kinds of things. I get really frustrated. But let's continue. The second prophecy stated that the divided nation of Israel would be reunited and placed under the rule of David. The restoration of Israel from captivity among the heathen was the first step in the fulfillment of the divine promise. The remnant was to consist of those who had profited from the discipline of the exile and had become spiritually holy. Since the revival was never attained, before or after the return under Zerubbabel, the fulfillment of these promises did not come to pass. God did for Israel as a nation, Everything he could to help them repent, but they chose to remain rebellious. Therefore, eventually, he had no choice but to reject them as a nation after they crucified his son. The Lord opened the way for spiritual Israel, the church, to inherit the promises of the eternal kingdom. Today, every person that accepts Christ as his personal Savior can inherit the promises of God. So the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 were fulfilled partially when the Jews were restored from captivity among the nations. That doesn't even make any sense because they were not all brought back from captivity of the nations. So that doesn't even make any sense. But these prophecies will be fulfilled ultimately by whom? Dun dun dun, dun 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 Us. That's insanity. Oh, I mean, you, you, you read the text for yourself, right? I mean, I, 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 I tried not to read anything into it. Did you find him, uh, Matthew Henry? Did, do, uh, uh, what does he say? Do you want to summarize it or? Yeah, there is a lot. If you don't have time to do it now, that's okay. We'll, we can do it next week if we need to. All right, okay. All right, yeah, there's a lot. But I always challenge people to do that because, because I don't want people to think that I'm just like making up a straw man here, right? I mean, that's a commentary here and you just saw what they did. Hey, Ezekiel 37? No, 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 no. You're, you're misreading it. Now they acknowledge it wasn't fulfilled. So everyone acknowledges that those promises have not been fulfilled. Everyone acknowledges that. The issue is going to be fulfilled in whom? The church or somehow with Israel. Now, you see, the minute you say the church, what gets completely thrown out of Ezekiel 37? What gets completely thrown out of Ezekiel? The minute you say the church, what gets immediately thrown out of Ezekiel 37? Land. Boom, gone. Land, gone. Second, the unification of Israel and Judah one king over them, all. King over them all. All, all basically Israel gets thrown out i mean because Israel gets replaced well, but isn't Jesus the one king over all if, well, if you're going to spiritualize it right right that would still that that, that would sell. They would have Jesus being the king over the church that's really logical because he is of the line, so right yeah. right right but the point is is you don't you don't have the reunification of, of of Israel and Judah, you don't have them ruling over actual Israel, and then you don't have uh, the land promise. Now, I do have something here quickly on the land, because I think it's important. All right, are you ready? There is probably no more disputed real estate on earth than the land of Israel. Even calling it Israel will raise objections from some quarters. The Jewish people lay claim to the land because they first held, held possession of it a millennial, millennia ago and because God directly gave them the land as recorded in the Bible. Right? In Genesis 12.7, God promised Abram, who had just arrived in Canaan, To your offspring, I will give you this land. Later in Genesis 15, God expands on the unconditional promise. Please note, unconditional promise. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the Euphrates. Then in Genesis 17, 8, God repeats the promise to Abraham, adding that the land uh, give is irreversible. The whole land of Canaan, whom you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. God later repeats the promise to Abram's son Isaac, Genesis 26, Isaac's son's Jacob, Genesis 28, whose name is later changed to Israel. In the Abrahamic covenant then, God laid out the extent of the land that would belong to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A territory including all of Canaan and stretching from Egypt to modern-day Iraq. Several centuries later, when it came time to, for the Israelites to actually take possession of the land, God spoke of a vast area from Negev wilderness and the south, to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. That's Joshua 1.4. The promise of land belonging to the children of Israel is permanent. Even when Israel was expelled from their land, which has happened twice in history, God promised that they would return even if you have been banished from the most distant land under the heavens. From there, your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 4 through 5. This promise is what is sometimes referred to as the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant. Deuteronomy 29, verse 1 to chapter 30, verse 10. And foretelling the removal of Israel from the land, the Palestinian covenant anticipated the Babylonian captivity and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. In both cases, the promises of the covenant held true. The Jews recognized their land and their nation in 557, regained their land in 537 B.C., and again in 1948. Israel is still in the land, despite the fact that their conquerors, Babylon and, Babylon and Rome, are all gone. All, the, all this reinforces the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God would establish Israel in the land as his chosen people. The land covenant also contains some special promises to Israel that many believe will not be completely fulfilled until the millennial reign of Christ. All right, And then it says, uh, according to Genesis 15 and Joshua 1, The land God gave to Israel included everything from the Nile River in Egypt to Lebanon south to north and everything from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates rivers west to east. On today's map, the land God has stated belongs to Israel includes everything in modern-day Israel possesses, plus all the territory occupied by the Palestinians and the West Bank and Gaza, plus some of Egypt and Syria, plus of Jordan, plus some of Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Thus, Israel currently only possesses only a fraction of the land. Meaning what? Not yet fulfilled. Now, why? Let's end with this. There's far more I could do here. Here's the question. Why is all that important in light of Romans 9? That's the million-dollar question. All you got to do is answer this, you get to go home. Why? All we just spent almost an hour. Why is all of that important in light of Romans nine? Well, let me help. I'll just i'll i'll help everyone out. All of this is important because some people will try to find things in Romans nine. Romans 10 or Romans 11 to say that God is done with national Israel and replaced it with us. If I can go back and find these very clear, detailed promises that have never been fulfilled, it's impossible for me to find a way to fulfill them in us. Meaning that whatever I find in Romans 9, 10, and 11, like not all Israel is Israel, I may find a phrase that I may say, well, see, that gets rid of the church, that gets rid of Israel and, and replaces it with the church. I may try to do that, but I've got all of these other things that would yell that I cannot do that. All of these other things are there to protect us from being from mishandling the text. Does that make sense? Why this is important is it helps identify that Israel had promises that have never been fulfilled and I cannot not get them fulfilled in the church. What do I have to do to get them fulfilled in the church? I just got to spiritualize it all. I mean, not only do I have to spiritualize spiritualize it all, what do I have to, this is very important. Everyone talks about spiritualizing and I completely agree. But what do I really have to do to get get Israel to lose the promises and the church gets them? What's the one thing I have to do? I have to completely destroy the concept of election, and I'm going to say this, the eternal security of the believer. If, if Israel's unfaithfulness was enough for them to lose the promise, then why can I count on that my unfaithfulness is not enough for me to lose the promises that God has given me? You say, well, God said our promises are sure. It sounds like, well, from what we just read, that those land promises were sure as well. Yes? God said. God said. Well, if God, you say, well, well, but you, you're, you're taking it too literal. Well, then am I going to take the promises God gives to me as literal? Isn't it amazing that the promises are literal, right? But literally removed from them. Like, oh, so those promises are literally for me, but they were not literally for Israel. Well, well even, even some of the others, they say, because they don't, they don't believe the bringing of, of Israel and Judah into one nation. They think that's spiritual, and that means the church. So, I mean, like, literally, they, they make most of it, none of it, literal. And if you start that hermeneutic, how, do, how far do you take that hermeneutic? Is a day a day? Did, did the world really get flooded? I mean, did, did, a, did a serpent really talk to Eve? Probably not. I mean, why do not just spiritualize everything? Was a man really born of a virgin? Yes. Did, he really, did he raise the dead physically? Now, see, so you say that. Like, no, you can't say that. Well, why? You set up the hermeneutic. This, the, the reason we're going through these promises, and I know we only got, we, we're not even, look, I've got 11, I have 11, 11 different sections of promises. We've not finished the first one yet. This is going to take literally forever. Okay, well, okay. Okay, Okay. 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 forever doesn't mean forever. That was kind of a joke, right? But it's going to take forever in the sense of this. By the time we're done with this, you're going to be like, just stop, just stop. But no, I'm not going to stop. Because when it's done, remember we spent forever trying to figure out that Israel means Israel. And we still had people disagree. After 3,000 references, no, no, no. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, what do I have to do? Well, by the time I'm done with this, there still will be people disagree. But I don't know what I can do. I'm going to go through every one. And by the time it's over, you're going to be like, Those promises are for Israel. Now people say, so what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that we're we're a, a dispensationalist and, and we're I, we don't in this particular case, we don't need to categorize it. Here's the category we need to be in. God made promises to Israel. Those promises seem to be guaranteed and unconditional. They haven't been fulfilled. Even when God makes the new covenant, he seems to repeat some of those old promises, which tells me that even if I can find a place where they got the land, the land is promised again in the new covenant. Meaning, that it's still future even from when they had it in Joshua. Okay, so that means there's still a land promise. They didn't get it. So here's what I know. Israel, the nation, there are promises that has to be fulfilled. And what are those promises? restoration, revival, reunification, and land. That has to happen. Where's the only place I can put it? In the future. So what about a rapture? What about a millennial kingdom? Just, it's going to be future. They're going to get it. And I don't know why Christians get so mad. Like, people will argue, no, no, Israel doesn't mean Israel. And it's like, why are you getting so upset? Why is it hurt you so much that Israel could still be Israel? Like, it's just really weird when people get so mad at me. I'm like, is it, are you okay? Like, do you, are you, you hate the Jews that much? No, they can't get those promises. Like, are you okay? It doesn't take away any promises from you. But, like, people get mad and, like, want to argue. And you, you almost want to say, you've been to Germany recently? You no know Hitler? Okay. I'm not trying to say they're an anti-Semitic, but I'm just saying it seems pretty weird that you would get so upset that I'm like, no promises to Israel or promises to Israel. I'm not arguing that we go out and buy the left-behind books. I'm not saying that we go buy the, the old movies from the 1970s about the Mark of the Beast or The Thief in the Night or whatever those crazy movies were that were not very well made. I'm not saying we have to go full crazy Babel prophecy. I'm just saying there's promises made to Israel that haven't been fulfilled, and I believe they can be fulfilled. And here's the reason I believe it's important because it stands for the doctrine of election. If I can't trust God to fulfill his promises to Israel, I can't trust him to fulfill his promises to me. But it's just so weird. Like, and it's usually the reformed world. Like, oh, no, 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 no. You're denying all millennialism. No, no, you're not reformed. And it's like, calm down. Are you that upset over the fact that I believe promises have been made? Why does it bother you so much? Like, I just don't under, Like, from a theological perspective, what does it hurt? God's made promises. If they don't come to pass, does that destroy anything? Well, it would be bad for Israel, right? But it doesn't change anything. And if they come to pass, are you going to be like, oh, that's not fair. <laughs> they shouldn't get those promises because I told him not all Israel's Israel. I told him it was spiritual Israel. It's like they throw a fit like a kid. And sometimes I'm sitting there in the middle of the argument kind of just looking like, what is going on? It's going to be okay. It's like, it's like a, a kid getting mad that someone ate the last bowl of cereal. There's plenty of cereal to go around. It's going to be okay. So for those who are listening who are all millennial, take a deep breath. It's okay, man. Okay? If there's promises for Israel, it's going to be okay. It's not going to hurt you at all. To see someone get promises that God made fulfilled, it's not going to hurt you. I, I don't know why it's such, why is it so, isn't it weird that it's just so controversial in theological circles? Like of all the controversies we could have, Israel doesn't get the promises. They're done. Well, okay. All right, it'll be okay. What if they're What if they're not done? Are you okay with it? I'm okay with it if God's... In fact, I'm kind of happy that he's not done with them. I'm kind of happy about it. Because I I know I'm not worthy of any of his promises. some, Some theological fights, you just have to scratch your head and go, what? Like I said the same thing, sometimes the fights about Calvinism makes no sense. Who will be saved? Those who believe. No, no. Those who believe. Okay. If I'm a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist, who's going to be saved? Those who believe. How are they going to believe? The word of God has to be preached to them. My job is to preach the word of God to them. Right? right. Those who don't believe will not be saved. All right. Calvinist comes along and says, well, those who believe, why did they believe? God. This side says, those who believe because of? them the issue is not oh wait you're saying some people can't believe no we both agree that the only people who will be saved are those who believe the issue is why did they believe we're arguing about why they believed we all are agreeing that the only people who will be saved are those who believe so why do people get so mad and upset and lose their ever-living mind Again, we had people who were going to join our church who heard me on radio talk about... And they stopped the car and went back and they're like, you can't go to that church. You believe in that Calvinism stuff. Okay, let's talk about it. Who believes? I mean, who who will be saved? Well, those who believe. Those who believe. The issue is we're just... We're arguing over why. And like, God can't be the reason! There's no way. I, God, you can't be the reason they believe. I will not tolerate you being the reason. It's me. I'm the reason. I'm like, you're going to be that upset that you have to be the reason you believe? It, you can't allow God to be the reason? In a that kind of a weird position? God, you can't be the reason. Well, I don't know. The all-knowing, all-powerful God can't be the reason. Okay, all right. That's... That, I hope he is, yes. But I'm saying, you see, it's just, sometimes when you, have to, you have to get away from all of the argument and just try to simplify it. And when you simplify it, you're like, "What are we getting so upset about? What are we getting so upset about? God made promises to Israel, haven't been fulfilled. Praise God, he's going to fulfill them. Because I know God keeps his promises. Because if he doesn't keep his promises, you know what? He's going to come, he, he, he's going to show up at my house and say, you remember that promise about everlasting life? Sorry, I just took it from you, and I'm giving it to Twyla. What, 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 what. I, No, I don't want, I, I mean, if, if we're going to take it, the promise of remiserable, give them to me, why can't he take the promise from me and give them to someone else? Right? We don't want that. All right, we'll stop. All right. Yeah, you can see this stuff. This subject just drives me crazy that it's so controversial. It's just, I just sometimes, like, you'll get into these debates and I'm just like, I don't even know what we're debating anymore. I just, whatever. Sometimes when people debate, you know what you do? Sometimes you just let them talk. Right? Sometimes just let them talk and because sometimes you realize that the more you try to answer, it's just never ending. So sometimes you just let them, sometimes the best answer to someone who wants to debate is just let them debate with themselves. Just let them hear themselves. Because sometimes there's just no point. You're just like, you just, whatever, you know, I can't convince you. And, and, and sometimes you just have to ask, why are you so committed to the cause that Israel doesn't get the promises? Why are you so committed to that cause? It just seems like a weird thing to get upset about. Like, of all the things people may argue with me about, it's like, I'm going to argue with you because you believe God isn't done with Israel. And I'm like, really? Of all the things that you're upset with me about? Right? I mean, that's just, I could, I could give you a list of things to be upset with me about that would be very good things to be upset with me about. That just seems like a weird one. Right? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. There's is a very sadly controversial subject. I hope what we've seen today is that Ezekiel 37 is pretty straightforward and that we will take what is straightforward to help us understand what may not be so straightforward as we get into Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Help us let the clear interpret the unclear. And we ask this in Jesus' name because people sin.